There's a few questions here before I start the talk. Is this a correct understanding of the five aggregates? Form. There's a sticky yellow-brown substance on my plate. Vedna. Wow, the smell is nice and it tastes delicious. Perception. Of course, this is honey. Yes, of course. Uh, Mental formations. I love honey. Must, uh, Must have some... Must have some local in Newton Abbott soon. Yeah, the thoughts and so forth that are following. Uh, consciousness. I do have a sweet tooth. No. That would be another mental formation. <laughs> got to get some. Wonder where they got it. Is this clover or is this dandelion honey? Yeah, all this stuff is mental formations. Consciousness. I've been thinking <laughs> ever since I read this, what would you say about Consciousness. Uh, I mean, consciousness is that which knows. Is so it would be sort of like I'm experiencing this, but even that doesn't really do it. Um, and it, again, it depends on how you want to define consciousness. Is if it's sense consciousness, then it's like. Uh, there's a taste in my mouth or I smell something or I feel something. The sticky comes to the perception or the taste of sweet, that's perception. Um, yeah, consciousness is just attending to something. Consciousness in a sort of conscious of self way would be I'm doing this but it's really tricky but all the others yeah very very good have you got any more suggestions for trap PT either the sweep of the spine up to the head uh, isn't working or I'm not doing it correctly the blockages on my face are uh, becoming a real distraction from the breath Actually, I don't really have much more than that. Make sure that when you do the sweep, you come out of the blockages and so forth. Um, About the only other thing I can suggest is to find another method and see if that will generate access concentration. So if this stuff is happening when you're doing the breath, you might try the body scan or meta and see if that's helpful. But I don't really have much else. Yesterday, someone asked a question about the difference between grief and craving. If appropriate, could you develop your views on the difference? Well, I've been thinking about what else I can say, and I really, I really haven't come up with anything more to say than what I did. The, the grief is a process that we have to go through to basically integrate a, an unpleasant change that's taken place. And the craving is the wanting, in this case, wanting the change to have not taken place or wanting the change to be undone or something like that. Uh, the grief 
is more of an acceptance of reality. This is the way things are. And the craving is trying to make it be different than it is. I think that's really about all I can come up with to say. If the first jhana starts and you know you don't have uh, much sustained concentration, shall you go back to the concentration practice? Yes. If you're sitting there working up your concentration, it's not too good, and the piti starts coming, uh, see if you can let it just sort of come and then disperse and get the concentration better. Uh, if you go into the first jhana without sufficient concentration, you're probably going to fall out of it once the PT starts to calm down and, and you go into the second. It just won't have enough concentration to hold it. If someone is losing concentration in the fifth or sixth jhana, should they go back to four and start again with concent- or or start again with concentration? Uh, yeah, go back to four. If you're working with one of the higher jhanas, five or six, and you start losing it, then either go, all right, this is what I'm going to get and start your insight practice. But if you want to try and deepen it, go back to four and rest there in four and then come back again. Uh, like activities such as dancing that helps me access the jhanas, do you think there is value in having foods that increase the likelihood of piti and sukha? I don't know. I don't know what foods would increase the likelihood of PT and sukha. Generally, when you eat, right after you've eaten, you're not in any good shape to get any concentration going because your body's busy digesting. And after you have digested, then the effect probably has worn off to a certain extent. All I can say really is... Experiment and see, but I don't. I wouldn't know what foods would be helpful. I can say that there are some foods that are not helpful. Uh, for example, too much caffeine tends to produce restlessness, and that's not helpful. Um, something that would give you indigestion, yeah, not so helpful. Uh, and then this last question is on. Uh, is there an equivalence of sunyata? And they have it translated as nothingness. But no, sunyata is emptiness. And that is not nothingness. It's that things are empty of an essence. Is there an equivalent of sunyata in Theravadan? Uh, yes. Uh, actually, the way it's spelled is more like the Pali word sunyata. Shunyata is the Sanskrit. And it is talked about in the suttas. There's two discourses on it in the Majjhima Nikaya, numbers 121 and 122. Not quite what you find in the Mahayana. But basically, the answer to this question, if I give you a really good answer, it's going to take a whole discourse which I'm planning to do tomorrow night, so I'll give you a better answer tomorrow night.
So tonight's talk needs to be preferenced with, to tell you the truth, I don't really know what happens when we die. I mean, I just really don't know. I got my theories, and I've heard a lot of other people's theories, but I really don't know. Now, having said that... Thus have I heard, once the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jeta's Grove, Anatapindika's Park. Now on that occasion, a pernicious view had arisen in a bhikkhu named Sati, the son of a fisherman. He was thinking, as I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, it is the same consciousness that runs and wanders through the rounds of rebirth and not another. So this is your classic reincarnation, that my consciousness, my sense of me, when I die, it's going to go find another body and come back, and that'll be you know, my next incarnation. This is a pretty classic description of what a lot of people understand as what happens after death in the Buddhist tradition. Notice it was called a pernicious view. Several bhikkhus, having heard this about him, went to the bhikkhu Sati and asked him, Friend Sati, is it true that such a view has arisen in you? Exactly so, friends. As I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, it is the same consciousness that runs and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another. Then those bhikkhus, desiring to detach him from that pernicious view, pressed and questioned and cross-questioned him. Friend Sati, do not say so. Do not misrepresent the Blessed One. It is not good to misrepresent the Blessed One. The Blessed One would not speak thus. For in many discourses, the Blessed One has stated consciousness to be dependently arisen, since without a condition, there is no origination of consciousness." So these monks think that Sati is not accurate in his understanding of what the Buddha said. In particular, they're saying that consciousness is a dependently originated phenomena. Right? It's not an independent thing that can wander on. Yet, although pressed and questioned and cross-questioned by those bhikkhus in this way, the bhikkhu sati, son of a fisherman, still obstinately adhered to that pernicious view and continued to insist upon it. Since those bhikkhus were unable to detach him from that pernicious view, they went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, they sat down at one side and told him all that had occurred, adding, Venerable Sir, since we could not detach the bhikkhu sati, the son of a fisherman, from this pernicious view, we have reported this matter to the Blessed One. Then the Blessed One addressed a certain bhikkhu thus, You, tell Sati the Master calls. Yes, Venerable Sir, he replied, and he went to the bhikkhu Sati and told him, The teacher calls you, friend Sati. Yes, friend, he replied, and he went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, sat down at one side. 
The Blessed One then asked him, Sati, is it true that the following view has arisen in you? <clears throat> As I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, it is the same consciousness that runs and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another. <coughs> exactly so, Venerable Sir. As I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One is the same consciousness that runs and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another. Sati, what is consciousness? Venerable Sir, it is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there the result of good and bad actions. Well, this is probably what we would say to some extent. Consciousness is that which speaks and feels. It's the little guy inside that knows, knows when I'm awake, right? It's seeing what I'm seeing. When I'm not conscious, then, you know, there's no seeing or feeling or anything. But when I am, it's that part of me that's actually doing that. This is pretty much in accord with what the Buddha is teaching. Consciousness is that which knows. But he goes on to add, and experiences here and there the result of good and bad actions. Remember this morning in talking about the great discourse on the full moon night, there's a bhikkhu, obtuse and stubborn, in whom arises the question, what self is going to experience the results of the not-self? So Sati's got the same thing going here, only he's not wondering. He knows it's his consciousness that's going to experience the results of the good and bad actions. Now, we might agree to this. If I do something nasty to someone, they're going to do something nasty back to me, and I will be conscious of the nasty stuff that comes back at me. But Sati wants to push it into the next life. And the Buddha responds, Misguided man, to whom have you ever known me to teach the Dhamma in that way? Misguided man, in many discourses have I not stated consciousness to be dependently arisen, since without a condition there is no origination of consciousness. But you, misguided man, have misrepresented us by your wrong grasp and injured yourself and stored up much demerit, for this will lead to your harm and suffering for a long time. Ah, <laughs> uh, when the Buddha was teaching, you better pay attention. <laughs> Don't come back to him with your own ideas. I mean, we think of the Buddha as being sweet and nice and loving and gentle, but if somebody said something stupid, he tended to call them out on it and say, this is stupid. Then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus, bhikkhus, what do you think? Has this bhikkhu sati, son of a fisherman, kindled even a spark of wisdom in this dhamma and discipline? No, venerable sir, <laughs> how could he have? When this was said, the bhikkhu sati, son of a fisherman, sat silent, dismayed, with shoulders drooping and head down, glum and without response. Then knowing this, the Blessed One told him, Misguided man, you will be recognized by your own pernicious view. I shall question the bhikkhus on this matter. Well, the Buddha is correct. 
here two and a half thousand years later, we're recognizing poor old Sati, the son of our fisherman, because of his pernicious view. Then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, do you understand the Dhamma taught by me as this Bhikkhu Sati, the son of a fisherman, does when he misrepresents us with his wrong grasp and injures himself and stores up much demerit. No, venerable sir, for in many discourses the Blessed One has stated consciousness to be dependently arisen, since without a condition there is no origination of consciousness. So last night I talked about the chain of dependent origination. Birth is, uh, death is dependent on birth. Birth is dependent upon becoming, all the way back to the senses are dependent upon mind and body. Mind and body is dependent on consciousness, and consciousness is also dependent on mind and body. They are interrelated. The simile that's given in the sutta is two sheaves of wheat standing against each other. If you pull one away, the other one falls over. It doesn't matter which one you pull away, the other one also falls over. So they are interdependent. That was the 10-link dependent origination. There is also the 12-link dependent origination, where the senses are dependent on mind and body. Mind and body is dependent on consciousness. And consciousness is dependent upon sankharas, concoctions, which is dependent upon ignorance. In other words, consciousness has to have an object. You, you can't have objectless consciousness. I mean, think about it. Have you ever been conscious and not been conscious of something? Now, you might have been spacey, right? But you couldn't just be conscious and there's nothing in your awareness. I mean, that's called not being conscious, right? So looking at these two descriptions of the origination of consciousness, it's dependent on the interaction of mind and body, and it's dependent upon an object. So the Buddha, after asking these other bhikkhus, do they understand it the same way? And they say, no, it's dependently originated, he replies. Good bhikkhus, it is good that you understand the Dhamma taught by me thus. For in many discourses I have stated consciousness to be dependently arisen, since without a condition there is no origination of consciousness. But this bhikkhu sati, son of a fisherman, misrepresents us by his wrong grasp and injures himself and stores up much demerit, for this will lead to his harm and suffering of this misguided man for a long time. Bhikkhus, consciousness is reckoned by the particular condition dependent upon which it arises. When consciousness arises dependent on the eye and forms, it is reckoned as eye consciousness. When consciousness arises dependent on the ear and sounds, it's ear consciousness. When it arises dependent on the nose and odors, it is nose consciousness. When it arises dependent on the tongue and taste, tongue consciousness. When it arises dependent upon the body and textures, body consciousness. When it arises dependent on the mind and mind objects, mind consciousness. So the Buddha is talking here about the sense consciousnesses and that it is reckoned dependent upon which sense is active and that the sense consciousness is dependent on the sense organ 
and the sense object, the eye and forms, the ear and sounds. Just as a fire is reckoned by the particular condition dependent upon which it burns, when a fire burns on logs, it's reckoned as a log fire. When a fire burns dependent on faggots, it's reckoned as a faggot fire. When fire burns dependent on grass, it's a grass fire. When it burns dependent on cow dung, it's a cow dung fire. When it's dependent on chaff, it's a chaff fire. When it's dependent on rubbish, it's a rubbish fire. It's the same for consciousness. Okay? So you don't have a fire that's just a fire without any fuel. Right? You, you don't have fuelless fires. That's just not possible. And you don't have consciousness without an object and a sense organ that is receiving the input from the object, the eye which is getting the light, the ear which is collecting the sound waves, and so forth. It's a dependently originated phenomena. Now, what follows in this sutta is what's often referred to as a catechism on dependent origination. The Buddha starts asking questions and the monks are replying. The first one's a little bit, Bhikkhus, do you see... This has come to be. Yes, venerable sir. Do you see its origination occurs with that as nutriment? Yes, venerable sir. Bhikkhus, do you see with the cessation of that nutriment, what has come to be is subject to cessation? Yes, venerable sir. Okay, so this is, monks, do you understand a necessary condition? That this has arisen, and it arose dependent on this previous cause. For example, do you see that birth is dependent, that death is dependent on birth? That no one ever dies if they don't get born. That being born is a necessary condition for something to die. Right? So basically he's checking with the monks to see do they understand about necessary conditions. This is the heart of the dependent origination. As I mentioned last night, the 12 links are a mnemonic device to help you remember a dozen important necessary conditions. The most important of the necessary conditions that you need to understand is that dukkha arises dependent upon craving. Craving is a necessary condition for the arising of dukkha. And if there is no craving, there is no arising of dukkha. I mean, we could substitute into this. Bhikkhus, do you see this? Dukkha has come to be. Yes, venerable sir. Bhikkhus, do you see the origination of dukkha occurs with craving as nutriment? Yes, venerable sir. Bhikkhus, do you see, with the cessation of that nutriment, with the cessation of that craving, what has come to be, the dukkha, is subject to cessation. Yes, venerable sir. Okay, so this is what the Buddha is now going on about for page after page after page. It's rather dry reading. I won't go into it. But I think it's actually quite important to get a sense that this is what the Buddha is talking about. He's taken Sati's view that there's some essence 
his consciousness that's going to go from incarnation to incarnation. And he's now talking about dependent origination. What he's saying, in essence, is don't think about there being something going on. Don't think about independent somethings. See that all of this is arising as dependently originated phenomena. Furthermore, interdependently originated phenomena. You're sitting here thinking that you have a self. The Buddha is saying, no, you are simply at the apex of a large number of streams of phenomena which have converged and you're sitting there experiencing the results of all these streams of phenomena. There's not an entity to be found. The fact that you're listening to me in English is due to the fact that your forebearers, the British, got over to North America and ran off the French, ran off the Dutch, ran off the Spanish, you know, and left English in North America. And growing up American, the only language I speak is English, right? So there's a lot of stuff that went into this. The fact that the British in the 1500s made better ships and better weapons than the Dutch and the Spanish and the French. Well, they didn't get rid of the French till the 1600s, right? That's all playing into the fact that you're listening to me speaking English. The fact that the British went out and conquered the world, built an empire where the sun never sets, meant that English became sort of the universal language for this planet. And so although there are people here whose native language isn't English, they managed to learn English because it's become the universal language, and so they're able to understand what's going on. This is all dependently originated phenomena coming together. There's the food that you ate for supper. That's dependently originated phenomena, right? Somebody had to cook it. Somebody had to get the food, you know, go into the garden and pick the food and then chop it up, peel it, make the soup. Somebody had to plant the garden. Somebody had to get the seeds. Somebody had to have the idea of having a garden here. I mean, it just goes on and on. And you start looking at anything and you find all these streams coming together to make it exist as it exists today. And furthermore, many of the streams are shared. We're both sharing the soup from tonight. I mean, I ate it, you ate it, right? But there are things that are part of what made me who I am that are different from what made you who you are. None of you grew up in Mississippi, all right? So I got all the Mississippi streams of phenomena coming in here that I had to deal with. You had to deal with whatever the streams were where you grew up. Our families of origin are different, so you're dealing with whatever good or bad stuff your family stuffed in your head when you were a little kid. I'm dealing with a different set of that stuff. So it's not all the same for each of us, but there is a lot of overlapping stuff that's going on. 
And furthermore, although you are the tip of all these streams coming together, it doesn't stop there because you also act. You are, by your actions, generating ongoing streams that affect other people. I'm up here at the moment talking away about dependent origination. Presumably that's affecting you. I mean, maybe you're bored with what I'm saying. Maybe you're getting it. Maybe you're confused. All right. But something's happening because I'm up here vibrating my throat and making airwaves punch against your eardrum. All right. So this stuff goes on and on. What the Buddha is saying is don't look for entities. Look for dependently originated phenomena. That's all there is. The idea of entities is a handy little shortcut that our pea brains use because it's too difficult for us to manipulate the world in terms of all these streams of dependently originated phenomena. So as a shortcut, this is a plate, right? This is a table. We, we're not able to manipulate the forest that produced the wood, nor the person that cut it down, nor the person who shaped it, nor the person that put it together, nor the person that bought it, nor the person that brought it in here, nor the person that decided this would be good because Lee wants a table and put it here. Or the fact that in the future it's just going to be firewood and get burned up. That's too complicated. So we come up with a shortcut, the entity table, which just sort of sums up all the stuff that's come together to make it. The problem arises in that we think, well, yeah, it's just a table, it's wood and so forth. But me, I'm a real person. There's an essence in here. And furthermore... I don't want it to end. I want it to go on. And even more, I want it to go on and get happier and better and everything else. So we have conceived of an entity that we're trying to make permanently happy when there was no entity there in the first place. They're just these streams of dependently originated phenomena rolling on. So basically what the Buddha is saying in response to Sati conceiving that his essence is his consciousness going from incarnation to incarnation is, no, there's just streams of dependently originated phenomena. That's all there is. And as for the getting the results of good and bad actions, remember the Buddha redefined karma in the first place, to say, karma, I declare, O monks, is intention. So if you intend something good, you're going to get the results of that wholesome intention. It's going to color your mind in such a way that you're more likely to have more wholesome intentions. If you intend unwholesome stuff, it's going to color your mind in a way such that you're more likely to have more unwholesome stuff. But the actions don't stop just with the intentions. That is, if you actually carry them out, if you say them or do them. Those results go into the universe. Those results are going to be felt no matter what. There are no entities here. 
It's not I do an action and that's going to come back to me. Not when you look at it from the ultimate perspective because there isn't really an I. It's just streams of dependently originated phenomena coming into focus here. And it, this action is done and it leaves a result in the universe and that may be part of the stream that comes back to this collection of streams and determines how I, in a relative sense, unfold. But no, whether it comes back or not, it's going to determine how the universe unfolds. Right? So your karmic resultants are happening all the time. So this notion of rebirth, I'd say you get reborn with every intentional action. Remember, there's not an entity in here, but you do an action, and it changes slightly how the universe is unfolding. Now, we don't get to decide the whole of the unfolding of the universe, right? We only get to contribute a little bit. I mean, if any of you were actually able to contribute a lot... I really wish you had not let George W. Bush run my country for the last eight years. He made a terrible mess, right? But despite my taking actions to prevent him from running the country, my actions were not sufficient to overcome that, right? I only get to contribute a little bit of what goes on. All of us get to contribute a little bit, okay? But if you stop identifying with this mind-body process and really start looking at all the streams of phenomena coming together to make the mind-body process and how they keep on going, then you can see that the actions have results that are determining the unfolding of the universe, not in some distant future, but as you're just carrying out these acts. This is what's going on. So what the Buddha is saying is don't look at the world in terms of entities. They're just dependently originated phenomena. That's all it is. That's what's happening. The results of the actions done by the apex of a stream of dependently originated phenomena are just more dependently originated phenomena feeding into the universe. But the one thing you don't want to do if you do understand what I'm saying is start identifying with the universe. You are not the same as the universe. Come on now. You have no clue what's going on on the nearest planet to the star Betelgeuse, right? You don't even know what planet that is. You're not the universe. The act of identification itself is the mistake. There is nothing that you can identify with that is correct. This is what the teaching on anatta is. Don't identify with your body. Don't identify with your vedna. Don't identify with your consciousness. Don't identify with the universe. You're not any of these things. You are a side effect of the fact that some streams of dependently originated phenomena came together formed a piece of the universe that's a mobile sensing device wandering around on the surface of the universe with the capacity to sense the mobile sensing device that wanders around on the surface of the universe. And so you think, there's a me there. 
It's not. It's just a mistaken notion. Now, the last thing I want to say about this before I open it up to question is what I've explained to you is looking from a more ultimate perspective, a more absolute perspective. Although it's not explicitly mentioned in the suttas, it does show up in some of the later writings that there are two truths, two ways of looking at the world. There are relative truths, but they have the limitation they don't fully explain what's going on. And there are more absolute truths, but they have the limitation they're much harder to experience. So from the relative perspective, there's a me and there's a you and there's 40 people in this room and these are my glasses and this is my little timer and this is Gaia House's table and Gaia House's book. All right, so all of this from the relative perspective. But the disadvantage with the relative perspective It's not a perspective that's particularly useful for escaping dukkha. And remember, the Buddha said he was teaching one thing only, the end of dukkha. In order to arrive at the end of dukkha, you're going to need to look at the universe from the absolute perspective. And that's a bit more challenging. But when you do look at the universe from a more absolute perspective, a more ultimate perspective, what you find is just streams of dependently originated phenomena rolling on. No entities, no essences. And as I'll talk about tomorrow night, it's all empty. So, questions? (laughs) Comments? It's aware of nothing in the sense that zero is a real number. If you open the cookie jar, sorry, the biscuit tin, and you look inside and it's empty, you go, there's nothing in here. So it's the concept of nothing can be found that it's aware of. Right? And the nothing in the seventh jhana is that basically it's dark and you can't find anything there, just like you can't find any biscuits in the biscuit tin. Right? How many biscuits are there in the biscuit tin? Zero. How many things are there that can be experienced in the seventh jhana? Zero. Yeah. So the... Although it's an experience of nothing, it is conscious of the fact that there is nothing. Now, when you get to the eighth jhana, you're in a state that's sort of less than nothing. But there's still enough trace there that you're aware the mind is in a state that doesn't have a characteristics you can describe. But there's still an awareness of being in a state that you that doesn't have characteristics you can describe. Now, the so-called ninth jhana, the cessation of feeling and perception, then there's nothing to be conscious of. And so if you're in that state for an hour, the hour goes by instantaneously because there's no consciousness there.
they become that their larvas reincarnate into they, they look for the reincarnation mm-hmm. of the larva. Right. So how would that work? <laughs> <clears throat> yes, how does the Tibetan reincarnated Lama stuff work? Remember at the start of this talk what I said? I don't really know what happens after death. What I can tell you what the Buddha is saying is don't think in terms of entities, think in terms of dependently originated streams of phenomena rolling on. We could postulate that some of what's going on is that there are streams that are not so easily detected with our usual physical detecting devices, and those somehow determine how someone's previous existence plays out in a future existence. I think that's what the Tibetans would say. We could also say that what the Tibetans are actually doing is finding children that have good ESP qualities. Now, what I mean by this, to find, say, the the next Dalai Lama or the next incarnation of someone, they take objects that belong to the one that died, right? And they put them in a tray and they show them to the kid that they're testing. And if the kid picks out all the right stuff, yeah, that's him. He knows his stuff. Except... There's always present someone who knows which is the right stuff. So it could be that the kid is picking it out of the mind of the person who knows the right stuff. He like looks at it and he thinks about it. And he's not consciously going, "Um, let me look into this guy's head and see. Kids seem to have better ESP than adults. Right? So basically the technique they have invented is a technique for detecting children that have good ESP. All right? So there's a second explanation. A third one is, yeah, there's something that goes on. And they've figured out how to detect it. But to tell you the truth, I don't know. I can give you some theories, but to tell you the truth, I don't know. Extrasensory perception, telepathy. We have to communicate using relative truth and with regard to things like the table, you know, you couldn't go about talking about everything as though it had been some great knowledge in it. Correct. So is it having an awareness of the absolute truth going on in communication that can help reinforce humans being in a wholesome way? We communicate using the relative truth. It's too difficult to talk about all of the streams that have made this table. Is it that if we can keep in mind the ultimate truth when communicating in the relative level that it makes it work better? Yeah, it certainly helps. The, the difficulty with the, the ultimate truth is that we have to express it using relative terms. So it's, it's very difficult to communicate exactly the ultimate truth. I'm using the phrase streams of dependently originated phenomena, but if you don't have a sense of what that means, I'm just you know up here 
speaking argle-bargle or something. So we, we want to keep the understandings that we have at the ultimate level so that when we're picking out words to try and communicate at the relative level, we're picking words that will point to what we're really trying to say. Now, sometimes it's just convenient to say, you know, table. I mean, I said to Gerald, well, you know, it would be really handy if I had a table next to my chair when I'm, you know, sitting in here. And he said, oh, we'll find you a table. And, you know, I didn't need to talk about streams of, I didn't need to go to the ultimate level here. It was just simply, this is a convenience thing. But in order to get to the point where we're not getting caught in craving and clinging, it's helpful to see it from a more ultimate perspective, to see that, yeah, this too is an impermanent object that if I'm counting on it to bring me lasting happiness, I'm doomed to not experience lasting happiness. In fact, the counting on it is going to produce some dukkha. So it depends on really the what you're trying to do as to how much of the ultimate perspective to bring in. If it has to do with if it has to do with something that might involve craving or clinging, it's going to be very helpful to bring in an ultimate perspective so that the tendency to crave and cling is reduced. If it's something purely utilitarian and it's quite clear there's no craving and clinging associated with it, then, yeah, you're okay. You don't have to worry about it. You're not going to be producing the dukkha in the first place. Does that help? Right. I think that certainly the communicating reinforced the idea of separate things. Reinforce not seeing them in a matrix of a lot of things coming together to make them. That it was necessary to communicate, you know, there's some game over there by those big trees. You know, really get definitive and separate it out because then you needed to go over there and hunt that game. Or there's some really nice berries down by the spring. So I think our words, our language, does very much tend to take us into separate entities. Whether it started at that point or not, I can't really say, but it certainly reinforces it to the point where we're pretty much trapped completely in looking at the world as separate entities. Yeah, <laughs> there's a couple of suttas. One, Ananda comes to him and starts asking him, okay, so <clears throat> death, where does that originate? Birth. Birth, where does that originate? Becoming, getting on back. Consciousness, where does that originate? Sankara. Sankaras, where does that originate? Ignorance. Ignorance, where does that originate? You've gone too far, Ananda. No beginning to this ignorance can be found. So in that sense that the ignorance is it's, it's there. 
If you don't know something, then you're ignorant of it, right? So the, the basic state of the universe is that you're ignorant of it. It's only when you can add to the universe your understanding that it begins to happen. So the ignorance was there always. In other suttas, <clears throat> people would come to the Buddha and they would want to know the answer to the ten undeclared points is how they're usually referred to. They would want to know, is the world eternal or limited? Is the world infinite or finite? Is the soul the same as the body? Or the, is the life force the same as the body? Or is it something different? And what happens to an enlightened being when they die? Do they exist? Do they not exist? Do they both exist and not exist? Do they neither exist or not exist? And the Buddha says, don't waste your time on these questions. Knowing the answer is not going to be helpful for getting out of dukkha. And in fact, wasting your time trying to find the answer is just going to cause you more dukkha. So, is the world infinite or not? Is it finite or not? The Buddha just refused to answer that. Occasionally, somebody would come to him and say, how did the world begin? And he would say, don't try and figure that out. You'll go mad or it'll lead to great vexation. The important thing is to figure out how to get out of dukkha. Everything else is a distraction. So he quite flat out says, no, don't go there. Don't spend your time there. Having said that, I much enjoy reading books on cosmology and the Big Bang and all that. So, Some people are incurable. No, I would say there's a rebirth every time you do an intentional act. Not that there is a me that gets reborn or a self that gets reborn. That the rebirth is basically there. there is a birth, okay, the result of the actions. And it's, it's the result, okay. It's, there's this entity here on the relative level that does an action and there's a result of that action. Or from a more ultimate standpoint, there are streams of dependently originated phenomena coming together, making mind-body process, which acts producing more streams of dependently originated phenomena. The producing more streams of dependently originated phenomena is a birth of those phenomena. So it's like the streams that came together to make the apex of those streams which acts those streams are reborn in the results of that action. The idea is to see it without ever coming across an entity, which is tricky because we're used to thinking in terms of entities. Our language works in terms of entities. Thank you. 
Right. If you see it from the viewpoint of he could see the streams of dependently originated phenomena that came together to make him who he was. Right. All the. Right. All 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 the becoming that made him who he was, and all the becoming that was going on in the world in the second watch in seeing beings passing away and rearising according to their karma. Yes. Very definitely. I think that's a probably much more accurate way of looking at it than taking it literally. Yeah. Very good. Anything else? Right, it goes really fast. So it's very difficult to follow a single instance all the way through. Sort of what you can do is hang out at one of the spots and watch stuff going by and then move to another spot and watch stuff going by. But to follow through, yeah, our minds our minds are not able to track how fast all that is moving. I mean, it's moving basically as fast as our minds can go, and we're trying to see it on top of it going that fast. So, yeah, it's pretty much impossible to follow it through. It's more like, it's more like you, you stand at the door and you watch what goes by, and then you go to the next door and you stand there and watch what goes by, and the next, and you watch what goes by. And then, using your wisdom, you interpret, okay, this is how it's unfolding. Yeah, physically it was definitely harder. Right. And you also said that given how your life is right now, you could do all right. In other words, you're attached to whatever it is that's making your life like it is right now. Do you have any guarantees that that's not going to change? That, you know, the economic system's not going to collapse? That uh, your health is going to remain good? That, I mean... You don't really have any guarantees of that. So, yeah, it's okay to cling to stuff that is liable to change, 
up until the point at which it changes. And then you experience the dukkha of it. So what the Buddha is saying is get yourself into a position where you're not clinging to anything and then no matter what changes, you're still doing fine. Well, apparently, from the evidence in the suttas, is that if you can get to that point where there's no craving and clinging, in other words, you have penetrated the delusion of self such that you're not conceiving of a self, it leaves you in a state that's always blissful. So that seems to be pretty positive. It's a nice side effect. It makes sense. I mean... You're not worried about anything. There's no restlessness. So the mind just sort of hangs out in bliss all the time. But, you know, that's what it says. I suggest that you go get enlightened and check it out for yourself. (laughs) 